You guys rock. Thanks. Um, hey, I want to, we, we have a couple of extra minutes in the service today. So before the guys start the timer in the back that also shows up up here, I just want to acknowledge a couple of people. Um, one, Andrew Moore, you've seen him back up here. He's kind of a child of the church, but he, he's, a, he's an intern right now. You can say, that's okay, you can go away. Uh, he's a pastoral intern right now, but he's also a seminary student, second year seminary. Patrick Blumendahl is our high school youth pastor. He's also a seminary student. We also have uh, Nate Hybor, who you guys, most of you know very well, and Zach. Zach DeForest, they're all pursuing a uh, degree, a uh, master's divinity degree and planning for God, uh, looking for God to, to call down what exactly their calling is for vocational pastoral type ministry. So I'm going to ask as we pray for the message that you join me in praying that God continue to do his work in them, but also continue to do his work through them. As a church, we get to be blessed by having people that are pursuing a, a journey with God, all of you. But in the, these particular, they happen to be men, but these particular four men, uh, we get to be a church that pours into them and then launch them wherever God calls them. So in a way, we're like Antioch preparing people to send them out into the world. So please consider that as part of your, um, part of your Christian calling to be praying for the people that God has entrusted to us to pour into, but also to, to receive from as they prepare for the ministry that he's called them to. So I'm going to pray for the message, but we'll pray for these, these, these people and their, these men and their wives and the families that they have, uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for blessing us with Zach and with Pat and Nate and Andrew. Thank you for uh, their spouses and, and, and in particular um, Patrick's fiance. Lord, we pray that you bless their marriage relationships, that you bless any Nate's children and any children that you might have planned for the future, that you give them uh, a perpetual reminder that they must develop and pour into the covenant relationship they have with their spouse, that they are not to cheat on their bride with the bride of Christ. Lord, remind them to set up boundaries, but also to seek you passionately, to love you like they've loved no one else. Lord, bless their ministries, continue to prepare them for it. Give us wisdom as we speak into their lives. Give us wisdom as we receive from them their ministry here. And Lord, as we move and transfer and, and transition into what you have to say to us today, I pray that that you give me the spirit that you want me to speak to your people today. Lord, this is a truth that is hard for me to swallow. I know it's true. I try to live it, but it, is, it goes against my addiction to duty. So I pray that you give me the words and the spirit to speak to your people, that you give me eyes to see and ears to hear as you give your people eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you want to communicate us today, to, to us today. And Lord, if there's something I plan to say that you don't want said, strike it from my memory or wipe it from the page. Convict me of it later. But I only want to say what you want to say to your people today. Remind us that this is not my message for them. It's your message for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. We ask for the glory of God the Father to bring weight to these words and that the Holy Spirit carries it out and it does not return void. Amen. Last week, we were in um, 
Colossians 3, and in Colossians 3, uh, you know, I talked about how I read that, how my, my, my natural tendency is to read that on all the things that clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Forgive whatever grievances you have against one another, just as the Lord forgave you. That's all duty-bound in me. Um, I want to do the right thing, and I want to choose the right thing, and I want to, I want to, I guess I want to be impressive, or I want to impress God in some way, and, and reminding us that, that it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy that not H-O-L-Y, not W-H-O-L-L-Y, but holy and dearly loved. As, as a response to that fact, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Today we're going to do something kind of similar. We're going to look at a passage that was actually very transformative to me about 12 years ago. Um, you know, I was asked, I, th I think Abby asked me a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I prayed that prayer at the beginning of a service, Lord, if there's something that I don't have planned to say that you want said, make it burn within me so that it has to come out. As I was praying that prayer with this passage, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I don't know how to say it. I don't want to say it like it was a violent thing, but it was just absolutely apparent that God said, it's not this, it's this. And I'm going to share that with you today. I'm going to share what, what it isn't and what it is. And, but, I, but I have to get your, I, I want to try to get your heart in a place where you can receive it like my heart was in a place that it could receive it. And I want you to know, this is one of the, we have a, we have a great big thing, a great big painting with fingerprints from a lot of different people in our former charge. Um, it's a tree with fingerprints of the leaves on our, in, our, in our family or in our dining room. And the verse that's at the bottom of this, I know spit just came out of my mouth. Those of you who saw it, I am aware. Um, <laughs> And if I don't say that I noticed, then you will think I didn't. And then there'll be that little house. Is it going to happen again? Um, so this verse is on that because people know that this is one of the mo this is one of my favorite. Uh, all scripture is, is a favorite, but there are some that are more, that have been more meaningful or at least more influential and more transformative in our lives than others. This is one of those for me. So let me, I'm going to tell you a couple stories to try to get us to see what what the tweak is in this passage. I'm not changing the word of God. I'm just telling you what God told, said to me that, that I'm look, I had been looking at it wrong. This is a, those of you who are married, if you've been married seven or eight years, 14, 15 years, 20, 21 years, you know, about every seven years, there's these waves that, that marriage counselors and people that study marriage relationships, they can kind of predict that there's different stages in marriage. There's a thing known as the seven-year itch. It's when, you know, it's not new and exciting anymore. Um, it, well, it might be still exciting. Don't, I just got someone in trouble. Um, probably myself. Uh, but you've, you've gone from it's new, you're learning everything about each other. And the things that used to be cute are now kind of annoying. Um, and, and you're kind of in a, I don't want to say a rut because a rut is just a grave with both ends kicked out, but you're, it's kind of predictable. If you've had kids, the first wave of kids has come along, you're now driving a minivan everywhere and, and you know, you, you don't get to see each other very much. And when you put the kids to bed, you're so exhausted. And then 14, 15, 2021, 20, you know, different kids, kids are off, they're in high school, you know, they don't need you anymore, but, um, you, but you, you, you're just doing this. 2021, some of them, you know, maybe you're empty nesters and, and you've got to learn to like each other again. There's this couple that have been married for about 15 years. And they began having more than their usual arguments and disagreements. And so they sat down to have a little chat. And, and in this case, it just happens to how the story's told. It was the wife that came up with this idea. I'm not blaming her. Okay. But so she, she wanted to make their marriage work again. So she agreed, they agreed on an idea that the wife had. For one month, they planned to drop a slip into each other's fault box. Just, just saying, hey, Here's, 
I don't, I don't really like this. Now, this is not a bad thing in, in, uh, in marriage counseling. And my, my friend Andrew Gorder is a marriage and family therapist. Um, he, he, he says, he offers this suggestion to couples. He says, you know, every now and then, you know, you can, you can say to your spouse, hey, I have a complaint with a request for change. So it's just, hey, this is, this is kind of the toothpaste halfway, you know, with the cap not going, those kind of things. Just, would you just stop doing that? Um, and, and so I'm just requesting a little change. It's not an unhealthy thing, but, but for a month, we're going to remember each, each, we're going to put something in the fault box. So after a month, you know, and the wife, she was diligent. You know, she, here's the things that, some of the things, uh, you left the top off the jelly jar. You leave your wet towels on the floor. Dirty socks aren't in the hamper. On and on, you know, throughout the month. So after dinner at the end of the month, they exchanged their boxes. She held the one that was about his faults. He held the ones that were about hers. And they exchanged the boxes. And he, because it was her idea, he opened his first. And he heard, you know, you, you, your bathrobe, you leave it on the floor. Um, when, you, when you come home, I don't get the best of your day. You feel like you need 15 minutes to yourself for a while. And, and, you know, the jelly jar and the crumbs on the, on the counter, you don't seem to wash them off. When you don't stack the dishwasher right, you know, those kind of things. So he goes through them and he's trying to take them, you know, his ego's hurt a little bit and all that kind of thing. But he, he's waiting for her to open her box. And when she opens her box, there were 30 different slips. And they all said, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love, and I'm going to go all 30 of them. Now you tell me. Which one of those is your view of God? I love you, I love you, I love you, or yesterday when you had the opportunity to stop on the side of the road and help someone, you, it was going to be too much of an inconvenience, so you just went on. And the other day when someone asked you about your faith, you said, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. What, do you see that God sees your faults, or do you see that God just wants you to know how dear you are to him? Now, I'm not blaming the wife here nor am I blaming the husband. I'm not even sure it's a true story. I just know it's a story that illustrates a point. And the point being that sometimes we have a tweaked or changed or slightly, and I mean this in the academic sense, slightly perverted view of God. And so we go to, we move toward and we lean toward, I need to please God instead of I'm pleased with God. See, this, we're taken from our um, Scottish Presbyterian brothers and sisters today. I'm a Scotsman, and so we're angry about everything. That's what we do. And you, you think the Dutch are cheap? Uh, frugal. <laughs> right? The Scots want it scot-free, right? We want it free. So you, you, you be frugal. We're going to get it for nothing. <laughs> The Scots, you know, they're known for their anger. They complain about everything. And, and the Dutch are known for certain things. And, and, and I have some friends, Marty and Joanne Smith. Um, they're, they're Catholic. My dad's a Catholic convert. He actually found Christ converting to Catholicism. Um, but they have, they, they like to talk about their, they have the patent on or the copyright on guilt. And the beauty of, of, of how the Catholics practice is that when they're feeling guilty, when they feel convicted, when they feel like they've done something wrong, they can go into a box and on the other side of this little screen, there's a human being with flesh on. They confess their sins and that person says out loud, here's what you need to do. Um, say, you know, say the Lord's Prayer, do a couple of these things, um, you know, make right what you did wrong and you're absolved, you're forgiven, you're wiped clean, you're all good. So you, they walk out of that box knowing that if I do these few things, I, I feel all better. There's something glorious about having someone with skin on telling you you're all good. But that idea that people almost brag about having a patent on guilt, I'm not, I'm not coming down on them because we, 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 have, we have some of that too. 
But the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, ours starts off with the Heidelberg Catechism. We did this last week. What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My comfort is that I'm not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. We talked about that last week. And we talked about being, being whole, uh, chosen and holy and, and dearly loved. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says their, their first question, the one that summarizes everything they're after, and I think it's wonderful that it's towards Scotsman. It says, what is the chief end of man? I mean, we're, we're going to find out what we got to do. The chief end, man's chief end or humanity's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? I, it's not rhetorical. I want you to ask yourself the question, do you see God as a being, a deity, as a creator, as an all-powerful one to be enjoyed? Or do you see God as someone to be avoided or someone to be appeased or someone that you're just trying to hide from a little bit? If I'm honest with myself, most of the time, I behave in such a way, I don't believe in such a way, but I behave in such a way that I, that, that I want to impress God. And if you think about it, if you measure yourself against God, holy, all-knowing, everywhere, has no beginning, has no end, willing to sacrifice himself for us, I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to get to the point where, God, see, see, I'm, look at me, never. But I want to, it seems, clean up before I take a bath. I want to, it seems, that I want to please God. So I'm going to tell you one more story. It's kind of long. I'm going to tell it from the first-person perspective because that's how the author did it, and I think it sounds better. That, But I just want you to know I'm not co-opting this story. This did not happen to me, but it could have. I've been in a, Have anyone ever been to a five- or six-year-old soccer game? Listen. Again, not my voice. I was watching little kids play soccer, and these kids were only five or six years old, and they were playing a real game, a serious game. Two teams, complete with coaches, uniforms, and parents. I didn't know any of them, so I was able to just enjoy the game without wondering or really caring about who was going to win or lose. And I wish the parents and the coaches <laughs> could have behaved the same way. Some of you. The teams were pretty evenly matched. I'll just call them team one, team two. Nobody scored in the first period. And the kids were hilarious. They were clumsy and terribly inefficient. They fell all over their own feet. They stumbled over the ball. They kicked at the ball and missed, but it didn't seem to, they didn't seem to care. They're having fun. You've been to those things. It's, just a, it's like a hornet's nest following after something on the ground. And, and, and it's adorable, but then you've got the kid that just goes over here and just picks the grass. <laughs> got the other one going, Mom! And you got the one doing this. You know, we know. We've seen it. It's cute. But at the halftime, the coach, evidently, the, the desire to win is true in every level. So the coach of team two left all of his best players in. The coach of team one took out all of those, in, in the words of the story, put in the scrubs and kept their best player in the goal. In, in the goal. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been the parent of a kid who's a goalie in hockey or a, or a goaltender in soccer, you feel responsible to all the other parents for everything that happens. So the second period takes off, and this poor kid, he is flailing and throwing his body all over the place. Two, gores in the, two goals in the first 30 seconds of the second half. 
And this kid's getting a little, and you can see what's coming. And all of a sudden, you can see, I could tell who his dad was. You know, he, he was there, he, he had his coat on, but his tie was loosened up. He still had his nice shoes on there. The grass was a little dewy, so it was getting a little, his shoes were getting a little messed up. But you could, you could see mom and dad kind of. And then you can hear those words, hey, 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 get out there, get out, cut down the angle, cut down the angle. Now, I've never said anything like this in a soccer game myself, personally. Get out there, get out. Hey, look down the field, look down the field. Look, you know where it's going to go. Come on, you got this, you got this, Scotty, you got this. These two kids come down. How they broke away from the pack, I don't know. But one of them comes up, and, and Scotty did a great job. He kind of came out, and he cut down the angle. I don't know if you know what that means, but he, you come out, and it cuts down your ability to get past the goalie and still get it into the goal. And so he comes out, he's still in the box, and he, and he takes this kid out, and this kid stops. He does a little side pass over to his buddy. It actually goes to where he wanted it. That kid kicks it, big old looper, goes over and into the corner of the net. And poor Scotty goes up, the little goalie, he goes up, and he goes back to, the, to, to pick up the ball in the corner of the net, and he comes up to hands it to the ref. And you, you can see what's happening. You know what's happening. Big old tear coming. He's six years old. And he goes to his knees, and he puts, he's got those goalie gloves on that are way too big for his hands. You got to wrap him up, puts his fist in his face, and he's just crying. And his dad's on the sideline, and he starts to walk to his son. And his wife goes, Jim, Jim, nah, nah, nah. You'll embarrass him. Not violently, but he kind of took his arm away, and he walked out in the middle of the field. Now, this is the kind of game where it's not, there's not the spectators on one side and the team on the other. This is five and six years old. The parents are in their lawn chairs behind the coach, behind the team, and you got a couple of those dads like me and Rip Pexak used to be. <laughs> okay? If Rick is here, I'm sorry. He was quiet, though. I was not. He clapped. I yelled. So his dad comes out, he picks up his boy right, right out in the goalie box. I mean, t clock's still counting down. Picks up his kid, puts his arm around him. He's walking off the field. As he gets closer, you can hear him. And this is what he said. Gotta get, I got to find it here. Scotty, I'm so proud of you. You're great out there, man. I want everybody to know that you're my son. But daddy, I, I couldn't stop him. I tried, but, and I tried and I tried, but they kept scoring on me. Scotty, it doesn't matter how many times they scored on you. You're my son, and I'm proud of you. I want you to go back out there and finish the game. I know, you don't, I know you want to quit, but you can't. And son, you're going to get scored on again, but it's okay. Now get out there. I'm going to ask you a question. As a son, you think he looks at his dad as someone he has to appease? Someone he has to spend the rest of his life proving that he's worthy of his father's love? Or do you think he's pleased with his dad and that he knows who he belongs to? That he knows that there's nothing he can do to break his father's ability to love him? It's amazing what can change in your experience when you know the people that love you still love you when they're not going to abandon you. Little guy ran back out on the field. They scored two more times, but it was okay. And then from the author's voice, I'm going to make this my own voice. I get scored on every day. I try hard. I recklessly throw my body in every direction. I fume and I rage and I struggle with temptation and sin at every, with every ounce of my being. And Satan laughs. And he scores again. And the tears come. I go to my knees, sinful, convicted, helpless. And my father, my father rushes right out onto the field, right in front of the whole crowd. 
the whole jeering, laughing world. And he picks me up and he hugs me and he says, child, I'm so proud of you. You're great out there. I want everybody to know that you're my child. And because I control the outcome of the game, you still win. So folks, which picture of God do you have? The one who's consumed with your sin? So we talked last week about that guy that said, his name is Bill Johnson, but he said, God's not preoccupied or obsessed with sin. He's already dealt with it. I'm not saying that it's not right for us to confess our sin. We should. We can, should confess our sin to one another, and we should confess our sin to God. But if we think that God's up there going, we're wrong. I'm going to read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, two different ways. First, the way I naturally read it, and second, the way God spoke very loudly in my brain and told me, it's not the way you think. Here's the way I naturally read it, and that if you're consumed with guilt or feeling like you need to please God or appease God, and there are scriptures that back that up, just by the way, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But think about it, God gives you the faith, you don't come up with it yourself, and so as a result of God giving you faith, you can be pleased with God. God is pleased to give you faith. So here's my natural way of reading this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to know, or to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will sacrifice, duty, get out there and get it done. And if you fall down, get up before I kick dirt in your face. I had a coach that said that to me. Caught a pass, end zone, two-point conversion, went up, right? I mean, it's one of those slant patterns. You, you, quarterback, take Dan Clark, he takes, it, he takes the thing, he sets back two steps, does a basketball pass, I'm right in front of the center, I have to go up, curl it under, I got pommeled right down on my gut, Ball right in my in my stern right 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 in my what do you call that thing the uh, huh solar plexus well I don't know what you said but that was cool um, <laughs> probably way cooler than my thing and I'm on the ground going I can't breathe we scored I didn't drop the ball but the coach comes out and he goes oh you just got the you got the breath knocked out of you get up before I kick dirt in your face yes sir <laughs> what kind of is that your view of God? Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Let me read it with my eyebrows up. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see the difference? One is what you're not getting done. The other is what God has already done. Offer yourself. This kid threw his body to the team. To, he, he flailed all over. He sacrificed his body. And one time it was, I've got, I've got to win, I've got to win, I've got to protect my team, I've got to protect my team. The other was, just go take the hits. Your dad loves you. And I don't, I'm sorry, I know it's going to hurt, but you've got to get back out there. 
Are you trying to please God? Or are you pleased with God? Because there's a big difference between those two. One is legalism. The other is grace. You notice that this passage starts, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that God doesn't give you what you have coming to you. In fact, he showers you in a prodigal way with things that you don't deserve. We've heard those passages that tell us that, that, that I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, sure, it was before they went into exile, but he gave them that promise so that they would know that God adores them, that God loves them, and God only does and allows what will help us become more the person he wants us to be. So do you see God as disappointed with you? Or do you see him as proud of you? He's not preoccupied with your sin. He dealt with it. He loves you just like you are, and he's not going to leave you that way. Here's another example of how you might look at it. You have someone in your life that you love more than everyone else. We're not supposed to have favorites, I know, and I'm not talking about your kids. But think about your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your dad or your mom. or your, if, you're, if you're a grandparent, you only have one grandchild. That, that person, that, with the way Lynn used to put it when we had little kids, and she still does it with me every now and then, which I don't really know how to take it. Um, but she goes, oh, you make me grit my teeth. <laughs> it was pretty good, wasn't it? She calls it a surge. Like every now and then you just go, oh, yes. Who is that person? <laughs> I'm sorry, Lynn. They're all laughing at you right now. <laughs> I'm not going to look at her because I'll break down. <laughs> Who is that person? And because you love them that way, what do you do for them? Do you, do you look for ways to surprise them? Do you whisper sweet nothings in their ear? Do you go out of your way to buy, to buy something that costs you greatly? Do you, do you serve them? Do you do, if you know they're really busy, do you go out of your way to make sure that when they come home, it's all good? That they can just relax or rest or that they have your undivided attention? Of course you do. And if you don't, but you do feel that way, start doing that. Act like you're pleased with them. Now, what do you do when you're in the doghouse? When you were a kid and you got that report card, you know what's coming home. Or we used to get what's called citizenship reports. If you're not, if you're not really, you might be good in school, but you might be a jerk to others. And you get this citizenship note that comes home. If you know a citizenship note is coming home, what, do you, what did you do when you are a kid? Or if I'm in the doghouse with Lynn and she is very gracious, she's quick to forgive, it almost never happens. And it's been probably, I don't know, 15 years since I knew I was in the doghouse. But if you were in the doghouse, what do I do? I, I might weed the, the, the garden. I probably won't vacuum, but I probably should. But load the dishwasher the way she wants it loaded. Um, you know, I'm going to try to soften the blow, right? If, if that report card's coming home and you, you're going to over-obey your parents. If they say, would you clean your room? Go, can I clean the family room too? <laughs> right? I, and, and, and you just, you try to soften, you try to, to, to tenderize their heart a little bit because you know the hammer's coming down. And so if you can just compensate a little bit, because so maybe they go, well, he, he's not that bad of a kid. Let's just ground him for 10 weeks instead of the whole semester. Um, <laughs> and that kind of the attitude we have sometimes? If you're in the doghouse, if you're trying to please someone or appease them, you do the very same things that you would do if you're pleased with them. The behaviors are the same, but the motives are different. 
And we know that God says that he sees the heart, not just the behavior. So I'm going to ask you for a week. Every time you think of God, lift your eyebrows up. Every time you pray, lift your eyebrows up. I know how silly that sounds, but look at this. If I preach the whole message, even with my nice tone of voice, with my eyebrows down like this, how would it feel? (laughs) You look like Jack Nicholson, right? (laughs) But the same tone of voice with my eyebrows up, it's impossible to frown. You look like someone making goo-goo faces to babies. It changes you inside. And if you picture God looking at you with his eyebrows up, when you read the scripture, if you're like, therefore is God's chosen people holy and dearly. I'm, a, I'm chosen. I'm holy. I'm dearly loved. And, and if you have God's mercy, offer myself. This is my spiritual act of worship. It will change how you know that God sees you by looking at it with God's demeanor toward you. He's not looking to point out all your flaws. There's no more fault box. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You are my beloved. You know, remember Jesus, Jesus says that I want my joy to be in you and your joy to be complete. You think God wants us to, it's not happy, happy joy. It's not that. He wants you to enjoy God. And if you enjoy God and being in relationship with him in an intimate way, then you'll enjoy people. And you'll be able to show mercy like he shows mercy. And when someone hurts you or harms you, you'll be able to quickly forgive. Because folks, a heart that thinks that God has ripped it off can justify anything. But if you're in a perpetual state of being pleased with God and knowing that God loves you, then it is very difficult to hold against someone what God won't hold against you. This is a series on identity. And next week... We're going to talk about misplaced identity where some places we decide this is what defines me. But for this week, in preparation for that, for one week, I ask the challenge, simple, almost elementary. For one week, every time you think about God, every time you pray, and every time you read scripture, raise your eyebrows and remember that God's not looking at you like this. He's looking at you like this. Come on, I'm glad to be with you. You're my child. You're my daughter. You're my son. I'm so proud of you. You got this. It's going to hurt. But I want everyone to know you're mine. Let's pray. Lord, give us the courage to not try so hard to be courageous. Give us the discipline, Lord, to not try so hard to discipline ourselves. Lord, give us the humility to not clean ourselves up before you shower us with your love. Remind us, Lord, that we are your beloved. And help us to enjoy you tomorrow, just like we're supposed to enjoy you forever. Lord, I pray this on behalf of your people with my eyebrows up. And it's hard to do. But I think that's how you're looking at us. In Jesus' name, for the glory of God our Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
I'm going to finish with some words from Henry Nouwen, who was a great thinker and a man who taught me as much about grace as anybody else. I didn't know him personally, but um, he takes a bunch of scriptures and he puts them in his own words, and this is what he says to us. But before I read that, and that won't take long, um, 12 years ago when I was praying before the message on Romans 12, 1 and 2, when I said, God, would you give me, you know, if there's something I plan to say that you don't want said, I don't want to say it. And if, if there's something you have planned, make it burn with him. He didn't want to burn with him. He just shouted it. It's not about pleasing me. It's about being pleased with me. And you know, that changes every, it doesn't change our behavior, but it does change our motive. It changes our heart and it changes how we see God seeing us. So from Henry Nouwen, he says, you are his redeemed ones. You're his delight. And all his desire is to you. With the longing of a love which is stronger than death, in which many waters cannot quench, his heart yearns after you, seeking your fellowship and, his, and, and your love. Were it needed, he could die again to possess you. His life is bound up in yours. You are to him inexpressibly more indispensable and precious than you can ever know. Please go today knowing that there is no way you can understand the love that God has for you, but you can begin to experience it in a way you haven't before. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine. On. Let me I'm gonna do that again. The Lord bless you <laughs> and keep you. Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. God, that's a look on God's. God smile at you and you smile back and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.